Welcome to the Fem Nation podcast, where we wholeheartedly believe women entrepreneurs can rise together. Success comes in many flavors. There are no secret strategies. Women entrepreneurs are rewriting history by defining success on their own terms. Hi, I'm White of Gannon, the down-to-earth chick with a different name. Entrepreneur and founder of the Female Entrepreneur Movement, our business is dedicated to helping women start and grow their businesses, increasing financial independence. Each week, join me for inspiring stories and powerful interviews of women entrepreneurs sharing their lessons to success to help you take your business to the next level. Now, let's go for it. Welcome back to the Fem Nation podcast. Today, I have Denise Cope, who is the founder and president of Affordable Degrees Abroad. And we were connected, I think through LinkedIn is where it was, but it was a fascinating topic for me uh, as far as a business uh, created because we had gone through this with our son. So we connected, jammed on all things regarding what that looks like, but I wanted to find out what the entrepreneurial journey looked like for you. So Denise, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, White Dove. I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Where, the big question, did your entrepreneurial journey begin? Yeah, um, I began my entrepreneurial journey actually through sort of a back door. I never actually saw myself as an entrepreneur. I had been on a trajectory. I've been in higher education. I had been in higher education for 20 years, doing a, a sort of reached the pinnacle of my career, doing international education. Hmm. And being in the system actually caused me to reevaluate my role. I felt like I was complicit with the system. And by this, I mean all of US higher education that was harming students mm. through debt and through high cost. And after a while, I was like, you know, I, I can't ethically do this anymore. And I was lucky that I knew a better way mm-hmm. because in my role in international education, I got to see the full spectrum of how universities work. So my, you know, how I got into entrepreneurship was sort of like a kick in the pants. It was an ethical dilemma for myself. And I consider myself a positive disruptor. Um, Alton, what this means, right, because the word disruptor gets used a lot, particularly in tech industry, also in politics. But where I see myself in this is I tried to create change within the system. And after a while, I was like, this isn't working. And I want to better serve students and families. So I left the system in order to create a solution to serve students and families to find other options. And in this case, these are affordable degree options, either undergrad or grad degrees abroad. Interesting. And in regards to being a disruptor, I've thought about this word a lot because the word disruptor gets used a lot in tech industry, right? So you've got, you know, what's the slogan, move fast and break things. And and obviously, right, uh, I think in some ways the the higher ed system needs some shaking up. It needs a wake-up call. So there's going to be some some damage there, but that's going to happen regardless. But where I see myself as a positive disruptor, and I'm purposefully using that term, 
is I want to do um, have some intentional process and intentional good to, like I said, serve students and families to really know what the full spectrum is. So it's not just breaking stuff and creating chaos. It's actually I, one of the I love one of these quotations. The difference between a mob and a movement is a solution. And I see this is not the only solution out there in regards to higher education, but this is a solution for students and families. So the compelling part of what you were doing is what basically kind of shoved you into being part of that solution conversation. Right, right. It wasn't, you know, I never dreamed about, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. That was ne actually never one of my goals per se, but it, it was, like I said, a, a ethical dilemma I was facing. And I, at some point, just reached a pinnacle or reached a level where I said, I can't be part of the system anymore. Um, and it was that drive to align myself ethically and to create a solution that really compelled me to become an entrepreneur. And that system's big. I mean, we all know that that's a massive system. And the disruption, and I agree with you on the use of that word. It is, it is techie. It's used widely in the tech side of it. Um, and I think it's being, at this point, overused in that side of it. People want to be a disruptor or whatever it is. And, and I just kind of roll my eyes a little bit and say, yes, okay, you want to be a disruptor because that's the cool word of the decade or whatever it is. But, but as far as what you are doing is truly upsetting the system as it exists, is truly standing for something that is not proper. And it's almost like the emperor who has no clothes. It's nobody's really saying it, right? Nobody's doing a whole lot about it. So what is your, what are your benchmarks of success inside of this movement that you're creating this change that you're, you're spearheading? Well, I think, like I said, this isn't the only solution to, I'd say, the, the crisis of higher education in the United States, but... Your solution. This is right. My solution, which which is. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, so recently I met with a student who uh, she attend. I, I'm trying to mask all of the identifiers. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. But, um, she attends a university in Colorado and as an undergrad and she wants to continue her degree, her graduate degree, but she doesn't want to go into any more debt. She and her family, right? Her family's been saving up since the moment she was born. And they, even with those savings, they accumulated a lot of debt. And so she wants to continue her work. So we looked at universities abroad. She wants to do neuroscience, which is a very specific field. And so we, we, I tried to match her financial requirements, if there was any language requirements, as well as her specific academic requirements and student support that you would need on the other side, um, and match that together. And we analyzed, you know, there are tens of thousands of universities around the world. So, so we worked together. I luckily get to be that expert to say, okay, these are some really good universities. These are things you should look into. 
And so identified, we identified the top five for her. And so she's in the process of applying to those institutions for those neuroscience master's degree programs um, right now. And um, so I'll just, you know, have to wait and see how that pans out. But listen to some of the, the cost differentials here. That's where it gets really interesting. So Germany puts a lot of money into their public education system. They have a really world-class higher education system. And even for US students, with the exception of one province in Germany, it's zero tuition. Wow. Right? We can't even wrap our heads around that because we're so used to paying high, high, high amounts. But even in, for US students in this instance, it's free. Now, obviously, she still has to pay for room and board, and there's immigration costs and a flight. But uh, when you look at all of this together, it becomes a lot more affordable. For many students abroad, it's for undergrad, it's three years instead of four. It's one year for master. There's some two years as well, but uh, one year for master. So you end up saving usually a lot of money in the long run. And you get to work on your global skills and mm. building your independence, right? So there's all these added benefits as well. And so after a while, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> families just don't know this. And they should know this. Sure. Right. And that's Germany, right? It's not, it's not free across all of Europe. And it, you know, it depends where you're going and what you're looking for. So I don't want to make it appear that that's the case. It's free everywhere but here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it is in Europe free or very reduced tuition fees for the the students of that country. And so that's also a, a, another point of my, even though I'm an entrepreneur, I'm also an advocate. In the United States, we have to change the system. This is not okay. Where does that change start outside of, of bringing awareness to the parents and students? Right. I mean, I think it's multifaceted, mm -hmm. right? So obviously, I think institutions, some institutions are waking up to this trajectory of high, higher increased tuition cost every year is just not sustainable. Um, so some of it is at the institutional level, some of it's at the state level and the federal level. So it's advocacy at those realms. But honestly, we hold the power. We are the ones who vote. We are the ones who can take to the streets to say, this isn't okay. Mm -hmm. We can also vote through the marketplace, right? And so in this case, I mean, I don't see U.S. students taking to the streets, although I'm, you know, a rebel at heart, and I, I would definitely uh, encourage that. But <laughs> I do think we can take it to the marketplace. And if there are enough students and families that start to do this, and, and in this case, either, you know, if they, they use my option, there could be other options out there. But I think we can awaken a conversation in the United States to say this isn't okay. Mm -hmm. There is, um, in 2015 and 2016, uh, in South Africa, there was a movement called the fee, Fees Must Fall movement. And it was initiated by students who there was uh, a federal or nationwide fee increase for higher education. 
The students took to the streets, protested on campuses, and it really lasted probably you know, around a full year, but there was, there was change. And I've often wondered myself, because our fees are the highest in the world. They're high. Why are we doing this? I've often wondered, like, why aren't we taking to the streets? So I'm, I feel like I'm not only an entrepreneur, I'm an advocate. Because mm -hmm. I want there to be change. And if there can be change in the United States, and somehow it puts me out of business, hey, it's okay, I'll pivot, I'll do something else. Sure. But ultimately, want this to be a conversation in the United States. Have you experienced any sort of pushback from the system itself for doing this? Uh, I, not yet, but I will tell you, there are times when I wake up with a stomach ache because I know there will be pushback. Um, I haven't gone full blown with my social media campaign yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm expecting there to be greater pushback. I, one of my weaknesses in higher education is I have a master's degree and not a PhD. Most people on the outside looking in are like, wow, you have a master's degree. That's awesome. But in, you know, it's very hierarchical in higher ed. And I know that can be a, a point of picking me apart. Is that you're not qualified to state these things or to stand for this change? Mm-hmm. So I think there, there, there are ways for that that could happen. And I, you know, I do worry about it. But at the same time, I feel like there's enough momentum out there with students and families. Students and families don't care about that. Mm -mm. Students and families care about justice. Right. And they care about affordability. And so while I imagine there'll be a tax in that regard, I also feel like I have a greater role. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not serving the institutions, I'm serving students and families. And those students and families will rally behind you. Right. That's what I'm hoping. So we'll oh, they, will. they will. They <laughs> will. <laughs> it hasn't blown up yet. I will say it is something that is in my consciousness. Hmm. When are you gonna when are you going to full scale? What's that look like? It'll probably be soon, either December or January. But I it's really working both from a, from, if you look at, you know, business to consumer, um, you, you know, there's so much conversation out there already. So it could be, you know, I have a social media person that's helping me with Instagram, with um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn too. And I'm, I'm sort of building up that collateral and that momentum. Hmm. What is what is the one missing piece that you feel like you don't have outside of a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. Let me think. I, I, you know, I have 20 years of experience and a lot, a lot of this is within the context of international education. So I know a lot of international universities, a lot of relationships, but there are tens of tens of thousands of universities around the world. And I can't possibly know everything about every university and every program. So I also know that I've got gaps and that's normal. But I also know that I've got connections and know where to ask questions. 
so I can fill those gaps um, as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a possibility you're a part of this gearing up as mental preparedness for you? Mm, that's a great question. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone needs, I'd say, a mini mental makeover in order to, you know, step into the role. I mean, the word that comes to mind is gladiator. Yes. And so I'd say, you know, standing sort of firm within my own convictions and um, harnessing energy uh, for good. I also know, like like you said, there there's going to be, I don't know, haters is the, mm -hmm. the common term, right? Yeah. And I don't, I've never experienced that in an online format. I've had very, you know, in my roles, had very difficult conversations, but never where it's in a public sphere like this mm -hmm. and there could be haters. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I think will be a new experience of how to um, be strong within that context. If you, do you listen to Brene Brown at all? Do you know oh, her? I absolutely love her. And the, one of her books that I'm finishing right now is um, her leadership book, Dare to Lead. Yeah, I love her too. And to the audience out there, if you haven't seen the Netflix Brene Brown special. So good. So ah. good, right? And she even talks about sort of stepping yep. into this public sphere and people criticizing and sort of the haters. And her comment back is, you know, if you're a critic on the outside, yeah, you don't get a voice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the person who steps into the arena. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I, I, I know that that's coming for me in regards to having that fortitude. And it doesn't stop them from the chatter, though. That's the thing. It's just that in the context of when she says that, uh, and, and there's more context in her book about that as well. But when she says that, the conversation is that, you, we, as the advocate, the change maker, the, the entrepreneur, whatever it is we are doing and standing for that does draw public attention and public scrutiny, comments, all the above, the haters, we are able to deflect them and say, that doesn't apply. You are not in the ring. You're not in the arena. You're sitting on the couch and you're having an opinion about it and you're flapping your trap behind some sort of keyboard stroke that has nothing to do with anything because that's the number one place that it comes from is in the online realm because everybody's got an opinion in there mm -hmm. and they dish it out because it's easy to do and they don't have to be, you know, facing who they're saying it to specifically or directly. So when they say that it's, it's not so much that that will tone that down. It's our frame of mind that gives us the opportunity to say what you just said doesn't matter has nothing to do with this conversation, but we have to deflect it. And, and that's where that mental preparedness comes from. And I do believe that we don't step out into that arena until we've gone through a series of uh, preparation. What I, and that looks so different for every single person. And nobody can really actually build that one out. It's individually. We know then what the next step is as we started stepping into it. And then we'll step into it and say, oh, that nope, nope, that's not it. We go this direction. Or we say, yes, this is, you know, 
totally it. This is exactly what I was supposed to be doing, but we have to test that. And then when we're ready, we're ready. And there is a little bit of daring to that, you know, to, to lean on the Brene Brown you know, terminology. There is some daring there, but the vulnerability piece that you're talking about, it's raw and it's real and it can be attacked. That's the thing. But we, we say, no, thank you. Because mm-hmm. they're going to say what they want to say. We can't stop people from saying it, but we can prepare and stand fast. And we can have, we will have teams and we will have people and we will have the voices that we are standing for. The audience that we are advocating for is who's going to come amazingly to back that and say, no, no leave her alone. That's enough. This is absolutely right. Because she's saying what we all already know, you know, so it doesn't stop them from coming. They will come, but we can tell them you're not even in the arena. Mm-hmm. And I think what also gives me strength too, is I am stepping into a role of advocacy from a place of love. Mm-hmm. This isn't from a place of anger. I mean, um, obviously I'm frustrated with the system as I think many students and families are, but it's a deep place of love and appreciation. I myself am a product of US higher education and gain so much from this experience. Mm-hmm. And I, as you know, being involved with US higher education for 20 years, gained a lot of appreciation. And mm-hmm. I know the hard work that goes into it. And I'm not a chancellor, I'm not, you know, a provost at that level. And I don't know what those leadership struggles are, but I do know that that there needs to be a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, so it's coming from a place of love. And so in that regard, I feel like that gives me strength because you can't, you know, let's say somebody tries to attack me. Okay, they can do what they want, right? They can certainly mm-hmm. attack. And it still can hurt. But I have a lot more. If you think about like a keto, right? I get to sort of move around in that space, flip the energy, yes. and do it from a place of strength and love. Absolutely. And you're not against the system in what it provides. You're against the method that it's providing it. Yeah, we've lost our way. And it is time to wake up. Where do you think we lost it? What happened? In your opinion, obviously. I mean, I think it's multifaceted, of course, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not one single culprit. Certainly, I'd say if you just compare it to how this generally happens in other other institutions around the world, there's usually greater public commitment to higher education. And by public commitment, this is code for taxes, right? But Mm -hmm. it is how we use public funds to support a greater good. So right now we say one of the benefits of higher education has to do with preparing students for jobs. So it, so it helps the economy as well as helping democracy. Mm-hmm. Like you want educated people to be, to be participating in democracy. But right now we're putting the burden of that on students and families. This is a public commitment, and that's how other countries see it. And yet, we if you look at state funding over the years, now every state's different. Colorado is dismal, but every state is different, and the the 
level of public funding for education has decreased. And also with federal, I'd say it's this, we have this disparate system that in the end puts the burden on students and families. And of mm -hmm. course there can be great deals out there. Private still can have great deals, but finding them is a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And so the system tries to sort of keep a, me, a, a fog or a mask on pricing in some ways mm -hmm. in order to perpetuate it. Many universities abroad are transparent. They're, they're not you know, saying like, well, you know, our tuition is $43,000 a year. Maybe you'll get a discount. And they sort of dangle this potential, you know, in the U.S., that's the game. You try to dangle mm -hmm. scholarships and things and people. Whereas there aren't as many scholarships abroad. Why? Not because yet. the costs are just lower. You don't need them. So it's a more transparent system. So I think for a long time, the United States was number one, right? Everyone wanted to come to the United States. All U.S. students were like, yeah, our system's great. We've reached a point where this, the, the cost is, it's a tipping point. Parents and students are like, this isn't going to work for me anymore. Mm -hmm. That's domestic students. International students are like, no way. I'm not going to spend this much money. And by the way, your visa climate is not very uh, enticing for me. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? So yes. colleges and are seeing, U.S. colleges and universities are seeing a significant drop in international student revenue. So our status as the number one place to be in the world for higher education is mm -hmm. cracking right now at a rapid rate. And that's domestically and internationally. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see these cracks. And it's going to happen, I'd say, in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see a number of closures of certainly private higher education institutions. You're going to see restructures of public education as well, unless there's action to change. To alter the course. Mm -hmm. What about the institutions that have huge endowments? I mean, they. Well, like, I mean, let's face it Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. They're safe. Sure. <laughs> They're sure. going to be okay. Right. It's the ones, it's the privates that are tuition driven that may not have made the endowment investments that are really the ones at risk. But, you know, there are reports out now that, you know, there are 500 some universities on that list that could oh, wow. falter. That's a lot. That is a lot. So I think we'll start to see that the market already is starting to shift. And I think universities are waking up. And I think there's, you know, getting back to that word disruption, mm -hmm. there is going to be a market disruption one way or another. And so my hope, right, is universities are like, yeah, all right. I see this tsunami coming. Let's figure this out. And let's, at the same time, let's figure out public-private partnerships. Let's make it affordable for students. Where are there creative, innovative ways to um, not only maybe save the institution, but change the institution? Mm -hmm. We can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Right. No. Do you find, um, this is more of an analytical question, do you find that 
places like Germany or um, other countries that have either free or very, very minimal tuitional costs to attend the university? Do you find it's because in the public sector, they're taxed at a much higher rate than we are in the United States traditionally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there tends to be, I'd say, higher tax rates mm-hmm. um, throughout Europe than what I'd say work we would be accustomed to. I'd say we have a more libertarian view of mm-hmm. of um, taxation. How, you know, if you want to hire a degree, well, you have to pay for it. It's all on you. But right. that system is broken. That might have been true 10 years ago. It's not true now. Correct. And a lot has changed in 10 years. Oh, my gosh. And this being one of them, you know, so there's a lot of... Um, I was just having this conversation last night, actually, that there's a lot of uh, rerouting of thinking that how the system for many systems, not just this, but for many systems that they had been for decades going a specific way, it's not working anymore. So this isn't the only um, mm-hmm. it's not just higher education, but higher education is definitely one of them. We saw how the trade schools went out, you know, a few years back. Uh, I'd say about 20, 20 years back, it started phasing out because so many people wanted their kids to go to university and not blue collar trade schools. Now we have a gap. You know, we have a gap inside the trade industry that is is crup- crippling, you know, some of the, the growth that some places could have. I mean, there's so many different ways that that how we have been doing it and then the changes to make to try to um, come up to current, you know, about 20, 15, 20 years ago, it's not working, you know? So there's, I think there's a major shift in time in general on a lot Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. We're, I think coming up against, uh, yeah, some major changes, not only in education, but you're right in other fields as well. And a conversation that, um, is one that I'm, often involved in is women in entrepreneurship and, so, and hence the you know purpose for this podcast um, is to get this conversation rolling. But that is another one that is a conversation that, I mean, it had been a very, very different, you know, a framework that had been in existence for decades. And now we have in the last 20 years, um, women coming more into and then generations growing up inside of with this new entrepreneurial world looks like and women adding to it, you know, so then all of a sudden the conversation becomes, what does that look like? The system that we previously had in place is not where we're having to come up with new, um, new ways to do it, new frameworks, new conversations, because it's a different dynamic now and it's a different requirement. It's a different scene. So, I mean, mm-hmm. across a lot of boards and, and mm-hmm. as you advocate for, the change in your area, that's, it's, it's very interesting to me that there's a very parallel on the conversations that are being had inside of uh, different sectors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting from, if I reflect on my upbringing, so I was raised in a family that valued education, but also valued security. Mm-hmm. And so both of my parents worked in education, K through 12 education, and, you know, we're there for 30 years, right? You just stayed and that's yep. what you did. 
Yes. And, you know, talking to my parents about me taking this leap, they're like, oh, I don't know, Denise, this seems a little dangerous. And and my reflection is in this time period that we're living, that you're, ref- you're referencing, is it actually is some ways more secure to, to be an entrepreneur than to be in a system that is cracking. Mm-hmm. And so I... You know, obviously, I, I have to play my entrepreneurship game in a smart way. I yes. uh, can't be loosey-goosey with it. But it's just been a mental framework for me to reframe what is security. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so as I'm stepping into this you know, new entrepreneurship thing and all the time I'm like inundated with like, oh, okay, well, this is a new skill I've not really had to acquire before. Mm-hmm. I also think to myself, this is a way to not only create a different reality, but to create secure, hopefully financial security mm-hmm. for myself and my family but also for others out in the world, right? It's of service. I remember when my grandmother told me when I, I went to college late, um, I already had a family, we had a construction business. And so obviously in my twenties, that was you know lucrative and we didn't need to go to college. But when we closed it down, I was like, now what? So I, I ended up going to college and um, absolutely loved my experience in the learning realm. Um, it was invigorating and it really does take you outside of the bubble. So I, I have told all my kids that you will at least go for your bachelor's degree because that there's, it's not just the degree, it's what you learn in the process. So whatever that looks like, we figure out what that looks like, you know, and then we go forward. Now, that being said, when I stepped into, um, uh, my role, as learning inside of the the institution and figuring out what that looks like. My grandmother told me, she's like, well, why don't you just go to work for um, a large business and start entry level and then work your way up and you're smart enough, honey, you'll be able to make it and, and you'll have retirement. You'll make really good money. You won't have to worry about anything. You'll, you'll be able to call your shots after you put in your time and then, you know, let, let that, let that be your goal. And I said, that actually doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It did for her and for my parents' mm-hmm. generation, but not not here, not now. And I'm 42, so th- you know, I, if I'm if I'm talking in my you know early to mid 30s is when I went to college, you know, so it's relevant right now because I'm not talking like this was 20 years ago. I'm talking like this was just in the last decade. You know, a decade ago I started, and so I'm just like, I don't even know. I didn't even know what to say to her. Because I was just like, I don't even know how to explain that that actually is not a secure option. In fact, mm-hmm. it's not even an option because most big corporations aren't even interested in longevity anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that tide had shift for whatever. That's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation. But that tide had shift at that point in time. And so it was interesting to see how, yes, it did work like that for them. It totally mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. But that is not now. And it is more secure to, well, I won't say that. Entrepreneurship is is almost something that we have to be compelled to do and we can learn our way through it. But I won't say that's the only option. But inside of being an entrepreneur, you have to find your way, but you can build your security 
pieces. You can navigate that if you're truly building a business and not just over there, you know, trying to sling for some money. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that's out there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's hard conversation because for gosh, for 50 years, it was that was the status quo and it didn't change. Mm-hmm. And that's when we went from the manufacturing era, you know, to prosperity. And then now it's just like none of that, <laughs> none mm-hmm. of that stuff works. So now mm-hmm. what? It's like we're rewriting all of this. That's right. Yeah. The economy has shifted a lot in regards to, you know, what security means now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And it's funny because I've talked to a number of, of families and one of the questions on their mind is, is higher education even, should I even be pursuing that? Right. So it's funny, you know, 10 years ago, you're like, absolutely, I have to do that. Now, 10 years later, families are like, I don't know. Like, I, this doesn't seem like it's going to pay off. What's the ROI on this? Right. Because it's so expensive. Um, so that, and it's a valid question, right? And there are. It is people out there that are trying to create alternatives, which I commend because I don't think higher ed has a monopoly on the only way to to get a job. Absolutely. Now, I'd say my path, I call it like the middle path in some ways. So you still get a degree that's recognized and just doesn't break the bank, right? So it's like, ah, okay, maybe there is a middle way to do this um, without, you know, throwing everything away. Right. And I so also think- want to give a shout out to an organization. This is a nonprofit organization that I really like. And they see the problem too. Their approach is different than mine, right? So my approach is, hey, get a degree abroad. Their approach is, wait a second, the, the um, tuition uh, is not transparent. We, parents don't know mm-hmm. what they're going to pay um, because of what the, the the market prices versus a discounted rate, it gets obscured. And so their approach is to have a data-driven system for students to select universities based on their qualifications that they will know what they can get. So it's called Tuition Fit. Mm. And totally recommend them if you're looking to stay in the United States and want an option of like, okay, this is how much we can afford, where should we look? So there are, I'd say, extreme ways, right? It's like reject higher education altogether, my middle path, or the, I'd say tuition fit is if you're staying in the United States, go to them. That's amazing. I, I mean, I know that experience very well <laughs> because when my son, when he went to college, college names withheld, but when he went there, uh, we did the parents day, we did all the things, you know, we checked it out and, you know, ballpark, and this is what scholarships we have awarded, we're awarding him. And, and they were, they were transparent about that, you know, and I'm not knocking the school, but I just remember that having not gone through this process before, um, it was really kind of like, Oh, uh, because we had a ballpark, we figured out what it was going to be. We figured out, okay, we have to get just um, a tiny little bit of, of loans to cover the difference, but he had enough scholarship money coming in. And then he gets the bill after the semester starts and it was about $15,000 higher. And I thought, I was like, Whoa, no, 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 no. You need to take that in. Something's wrong with that. And he's like, all right, I'll take it in. So he goes in and talks to him. 
nope, it was right. And I was like, what happened? And so I'm racking my brain thinking, what did, what did I miss? What did I miss on that? And we just made this massive decision, moved him out there. I mean, all these things. And I was like, what did I miss? What did I miss on that? $15,000 is a lot of money. Right. You know? So, I mean, that, that was kind of a, we ended up bringing him back in state because at that point, even though there was more scholarship money awarded, the difference would still was marginally higher than in-state. And so I was like, well, then there's really, I mean, this is, does it's not making much sense, you know, unless there was some compelling reason for the type of degree, which wasn't, wasn't up his alley uh, being better than it. So, I mean, we made decisions as a family to bring him, you know, for him to come back in-state, but that was, an, that was the most craziest, bizarre moment. I was like, no, no, that must be wrong. That must be wrong because that's, I could see a couple thousand, maybe, you know, once they finally put pen to paper and put it all down. Mm -hmm. But I was like, 15,000, how did I miss that? Mm -hmm. You know, so I felt as a parent, I'm like, okay, crap. Um, All right, let's figure out, let's figure out how, okay, so how are we going to come up with 15,000? We can do another loan. We get, you know, I mean, then you start writing, you know, because we had tapped everything else out, think, you know, ballparking this, but we didn't know. Again, it's the parents and students that, don't totally know any higher education system. It's not high school. It's completely different. And it's its own, it has its own world and its own life. And so first time around, you really have no idea. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important what you do. And then also this nonprofit that you, you give a shout out to yeah. what they yeah. do. And it's, what I find fascinating is, you know, in no other industry, do you have such a, say a, a haze of like, okay, what am I paying? Imagine mm-hmm. you're going to buy a house and it could be $2,000 or it could be $250,000. And you don't know. <laughs> you don't. Right? right. <laughs> so, um, and you sort of have to walk through a big process before you actually know what the real costs are. Mm-hmm. And in no other industry, right? You don't see right. this in real estate. You don't see this with car dealerships, even used car dealerships, right? <laughs> There's there more transparency. There's more transparency. But in no other industry, right, do we do we have a lack of transparency for students and families to make solid financial decisions for themselves? Right. And that is why I like the abroad um, offerings, because for the most part, uh, you still can have scholarships and tuition discounts, but you don't have these wild, like, well, you could pay two thousand, you could pay two hundred fifty thousand, right? You, mm-hmm. you don't have these wild um, differences. So let me ask kind of a controversial question then, as far as what you do, um, who's benefiting from the fog and the haze? Oh, um, I mean. I'd say for, I mean, obviously I'd say it's institutions, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's more complicated than that. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to just paint all institutions as the bad guy. Sure. I also know like there are enrollment declines and they're scrambling to figure out how do we float the ship? And so if they sort of do this smoke and mirrors game, um, just trying to get people in the door, I, I, I get it, right? They're, they're trying to keep afloat. And I think they're keeping afloat a system. It's like the Titanic, right? It's breaking down. At some point, you have to abandon ship or you have to do something else. That might be a dramatic example. Maybe it's not as dramatic as the Titanic. But they're still trying to hold on to something that has become archaic and is no longer working. 
right. There needs to be a fundamental shift. Mm. And it's not just governments giving money to institutions. Right. It is bigger than that. It is a fundamental shift of what is our purpose? How can we best support that purpose for, for students and families and for the larger public good? But it is, it is, there's going to be something seismic, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share what you're bringing to the table when you unleash all the goodness? (laughs) Well, you mean in regards to like social media stuff? No, what you're doing, what you're building for your... Well, you can certainly visit um, www.affordabledegreesabroad.com. Um, to to sort of see what the offerings are, just for the heck of it. I mean, I also encourage students and families go um, on certain databases. The one that I work with is called study.eu. So it really focuses on uh, offerings in Europe, university degree options in Europe. And what's fascinating about them is they told me that United States is the second country of nation of students that are looking, right? The first oh. is India. United States students are the second. So I think there's a movement that's already happening. Mm. I'm already I'm just jumping on the wave, right? I'm not creating the wave. It's already happening. So to learn more about the offerings, go to www.affordabledegreesabroad.com. You can read my blog post where I wax on about some of the problems of higher education, but also look to alternatives and solutions. Because that, like I said before, the difference between a mob and a movement is a solution. You bet. I love that too. Thank you for coming on today, Denise. Yeah, this was fun. This is an amazing conversation. And I'm, I'm such a fan for advocacy and movements anyways. I think it lights a fire in all of us that we want to be a part of something greater and something bigger. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I thank you for stepping out into that world and being putting a voice to it. Thank you. So guys, I'm going to wrap up the interview at this point in time. Please check out Denise's stuff and familiarize yourself with the conversation that can be had out there, the pieces that are available for you. And as always, keep moving forward. Thanks for listening to the Fem Nation podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes for more details from the episode. If you love the show, share it with a friend or drop me a note. I'd love to hear from you over at whitedovegannon.com or find me on social media. Until next time, keep moving forward.